but he he taught us in I think it was marketing 300 this concept called the value equation V equals B minus C value equals the benefit the value of a thing equals the benefit of this thing minus the cost associated with getting or maintaining this thing and the theory that he gave to us that I think holds bar none in all of life is that this does apply to all of our life. Welcome to the second half of our episodes on chapter six. Uh, we spent last week talking about um, talking about fasting and reputation, doing something to be seen by others, as is Jesus' refrain in that portion of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, you know, he says, for those who do it to be seen have received the reward, but I say to you, go to your Father who's in secret and pray in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And so Willard makes the point that God grants them their wish. If they do it to be seen by others, he says, there you go. You have it. And I, since that is what you seek, you get no reward from me. Which is convicting. And we spent some time talking about the practice of fasting and um, how many times it is done to get answers, which is uh, strange because we don't really ever see it function that way in the Bible. Um, it more shows us our humanity, our dependency on God. And the question I begged in that was twofold. Um, can you tell yourself no? And do you think that there's something else that can sustain you if you go without food? And so it's been a practice I've tried to implement more into my life. Um, and so for this episode or this set of episodes, we're going to move on in chapter six and talk about the next trap. Willard talks about reputation and wealth. So we're moving on to wealth here. Um, and it is tied to reputation, but it is it is a little bit different. And we'll see some of the flavors of that as we continue this discussion. Um, but to start, I would love to read um, a passage for you. Uh, actually, Daniel, you can go ahead and read it here since it's on your screen. But uh, it is 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19. All right. And it says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Amen. Amen. Um, do you have anything that you initially want to point out about this passage? 
it doesn't tell them to not be rich. That was the thing I was going to draw attention to. <clears throat> One of the very popular ideas in our culture right now is, um, and we may get into this a little bit in a second, um, is that the rich are only rich by taking from the poor and that there's no other, and certainly that is a way to become rich, okay? So I'm not su suggesting that that is not a possibility, but I'm, I am suggesting that there Jesus, are other possibilities. Jesus speaks against that, yeah. right? When he speaks to the Pharisees. Mm -hmm. um, so the, I, I am suggesting there are other ways to become rich than exploitation. That's thing number one. And thing number two is the Bible never commands people who are rich to redistribute their riches to others, bar none, or to stop being rich. It does, like this passage, it does command generosity and abundant generosity. And so that is something that I think we as Christians need to hold rich Christians accountable for. Carefully, sensitively, and relationally. But nevertheless, we do. We do need that. Um, and but just so you know, if you make more than $34,000 a year, you're in the top 1% of earners in the world. Yeah. So you are by global definition, rich and in the 1%. Maybe not not by American standards. I think American standards somewhere around somewhere just under half a half a million dollars is one percent. Um, but if we're talking about if we have if we're talking globally, yeah. If you make what is pretty much average in America, here in the top one percent, yeah, you're rich. Yeah, so, so that's thing number one to highlight. Um, well, I guess that, that is thing number two as well. Um, and, and that is you are to be generous. Being rich isn't inherently exploitative. Right. And it's okay to be rich as long as you are also being generous, not just with your resources, but also in good works, right? That's what this right. passage explicitly says too. Um, you are to work in such a way that the kingdom of God is to be extended and righteousness is to be displayed in you. Um, and, and that I think is important too. Another thing, um, one of the passages that I often hear um, in talking about um, <clears throat> maybe more popular ideas about wealth redistribution, and I apologize if I brought this up on the podcast before, um, is early in Acts, it talks about how right. the, the disciples had everything in common. And then there's this story of Ananias and Sapphira and them being struck dead because they didn't give all of the proceeds. They lied. That was but, the thing. But see, see that, is, that is the thing. So go read Ananias and Sapphira passage in Acts. We won't cover and it And who here. is it? Is it Peter? Uh, yes. So they, they bring, they sell a piece of property they own. And what was custom then in the church was to bring all of the proceeds to the church, laid at the feet of the apostles, whose head is Peter, and um, first pope have them. Yes, yeah, um, and then have them distribute the money through the poor and the needy in Jerusalem. But Peter explicitly says, "You have tested the Holy Spirit and lied to not to men but to God." 
And that's why you're being judged so harshly. It's not that what he, he even says, was the property not yours to do with what you want? Mm. And once you sold it, wasn't the money yours to do with what you wanted? You didn't have to lie. You didn't have to give us everything. You were just supposed to be honest with it. Right. And so this passage that's usually used as a um, support for re- rather heavy-handed redistributive policies um, that should be used, I think, to bolster generosity and honesty um, is, is usually subverted, I think, in some not very good ways. So anyway, th- this passage that we just read also very clearly demonstrates that same principle. Um, so let's not get distracted and bogged down in our own political contexts. And I'll, I'll just make one final statement. This, this is a bit tricky because of our how things are currently running, which yes. could be for better or worse, but be what I'm about to say. But I think part of the struggle with things like this for your Amer- for your Western or American British Christian is we've abdicated a lot of things that were of the church to the government. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. And so we know the government's great at everything it does. So, you know, that's so why, fair why not for us. Let it um, but <laughs> And but anyway, I, I will um, on, on that note, I will say that wasn't without reason, right? And that's the right, Protestant, right. the Protestant, right. um, there's this whole thing in, in Luther's um, three treatise where he talks about, this is Martin Luther, the, the reformer, reformer, right? He's the one who nailed the 95 theses to the wall. He's the one who started Protestantism. Protestantism, right? We have this very... Um, strong inclination in the Protestant world to resist religious power over secular power. In fact, and that's, that starts with Luther because he supported the state running right. the church and having authority over the church, which was the reverse of the Catholic problem at the time, the church having authority over the state. Right. So I think it's inherent in the reaction to what he was coming out of, that we see that bifurcation. But I I think we have let it over time grow to an extreme that it shouldn't have. Um, If you want more information on that, you can read Martin Luther's Three Treaties. I say that because, especially in your case, things you've become familiar with, people will make these arguments uh, for like, for from scripture of things that could lead to governmental reforms yes not just reforms for how christians are to act yes 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 i mean it's very common in some this of my is, classes this is something interesting that i actually there's a gentleman um who i'm acquaintances with at school who's written on the subject and that's something he said to me is he's like i'm not interested in a in a like political policy yeah. thing especially with like money yeah he was talking especially about like the year of Jubilee, mm-hmm. but he said, I'm interested in how Christians and the church uses that. Yeah. I'm trying to call because I go to Pentecostal Pentecostalism to yeah. these kinds of things. Yeah. And so my thought is, uh, I mean, um, 
yesterday at church, we were talking about first Corinthians 13 or no, sorry, Hebrews 13. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it has to do with love. Um, let brotherly love continue. We talked about we one verse. We talked about what that implies. And we read from some ancient Greek thinkers who were around the time of the Christians. And his basic point was how crazy is it that you extend love for family members to people who aren't your blood? Yeah. It's so hard to even just love your own family. Why would you extend that kind of thing to somebody else? Mm-hmm. What would it be if somebody said of the church, how crazy is it that the people that do this thing that follow Jesus pay other people's debts? Yeah. Who are part of their community? Yeah. Isn't that wild? Yeah. Meanwhile, we're debating if, uh, you know, everyone's going to get their college debt forgiven. Yeah. That's the kind of thing that gets pushed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Now, I just want to make that point is, the reason we're harping on this is because much of the proclamation that's made for these kinds of changes are not for practices in your local church, therefore governmental institutions to correct, yeah. to correct their ways of, of being. And I do think there's many ways they can correct their ways of being, but you get yes. my point. Well, um, August, St. Augustine, um, he has his masterwork, the city of God. And in there he is, he displays several arguments for the way he thinks government should be run. Um, I don't have enough familiarity to talk on that at length. I do know he doesn't support the kind of government we have, but he also doesn't support the kind of government that has operated throughout most of history. Um, and I think I would agree with him and disagree with him in different places, but all of that to say one of his biggest things is in the city of God, we Christians are supposed to live in the city of God, not our primary allegiance is to God's kingdom, not the state. Right. And that comes secondary. And so I think that's, that's an important thing to recognize as well. Um, and then allegiance to state does come into the equation and pretty early um, because he does see the state as operating under the authority of God. But anyway, I digress. That is a whole other conversation and one that I need to do a lot more research in before speaking authoritatively on the matter. Um, So with that being said, let's get into Willard. Um, So in about midway through chapter six, he switches from reputation um, to specifically the topic of wealth. Um, On page 224, um, right under the the heading um, where your treasure is, which you have on the screen, Um, He says this, Jesus continues his warning about seeking security outside the kingdom by teaching about our treasures. And then he offers a definition of that. Treasures are things we try to keep because of a value we place on them. So one thing that I think is important to note is that this doesn't mean they are strictly material goods and We'll jump down to the next paragraph. He says, of course, we may also treasure things other than material goods. Now, we oftentimes, especially in our materialist context, and we've done some work with materialism, um, in our materialist context, we tend to think of treasures as those things physical that we possess. 
And those things definitely can be and are our treasures, but we can treasure a lot more than that. For example, our reputation, our relationships to our relationship to another person, another person, our security, our reputation, the reputation of our school or our business or our country. The most important commandment of the Judeo Christian tradition is to treasure God and his realm more than anything else. That is what it means to love God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. That's Shema. It means to treasure him, to hold him and his dear, uh, to hold him, yeah, and, and his right. dear, to protect and aid him in his purpose. Our only wisdom, safety, and fulfillment lies in so treasuring God. Then we will also treasure our neighbors rightly as he treasures them. Mm. So this again comes to Augustine's principle of, and Jesus's principle of weighing things properly, right? It's not wrong to treasure certain things. It's wrong to treasure things out of priority and in arrangement. Um, <clears throat> and so I think it's, it's crucially important that we understand um, we understand that treasures go beyond just the physical and that where our treasures are is crucially important to our participation in the kingdom of God. So um, Luke, I don't know if you have anything to add. Um. No, not at the moment. Okay. So I'm going to read just one other sentence. You don't have to pull this up, um, but it's from later in that same passage. Um, I think it's the first sentence of his last paragraph. Willard says, so to discuss our treasure is really to discuss our treasuring. He makes it a verb. We're talking about right. the way we treasure things. Uh, and, and that is really, really important. Um. So I want to talk a little bit about the way we treasure things. In so my undergraduate degree is in business, um, in marketing specifically. And that's been kind of a weird mix with um, divinity, but I'm, I'm very grateful for it because I think it's taught me to see the world in certain ways that are beneficial and outside the box for most people getting a divinity school degree. Um, but one of the most important things that I learned in my, um, in my undergraduate degree is uh, one of my professors taught me, and he actually has since become um, a friend, mentor, and older brother to me post-graduation. Um, but he, he taught us in, I think it was Marketing 300, this concept called the value equation. The value equation is, the, in typical algebraic terms, V, the letter V, equals B plus C. And what this stands for is value. You mean minus? Uh, yeah, sorry, minus C. Value equals the benefit. The value of a thing equals the benefit of this thing minus the cost associated with getting or maintaining this thing. 
And the theory that he gave to us that I think holds bar none in all of life is that this does apply to all of our life, not just in the way we operate um, in the market, let's say, but in the way we operate in everything, in our relationships, in the marketplace of ideas that we engage in, and as we'll see in a little bit, in our time and how we use our time. The value of something is purely denoted to us by the benefit we associate with it minus the cost. And we will only engage in something if the benefit outweighs the cost. Now, one, th one important thing to note is the cost might outweigh the benefit to us directly, right? But when it comes to being generous to people, to um, giving them your time or your resources or your attention or your energy, that might be a more of more cost to you, but you see the benefit of giving, right? it's better to give than to receive, of being generous, of being loving and caring and present with people as outweighing the cost to yourself. So we can be self-sacrificial. But I, I, I do think that we see self-sacrifice as being of more benefit, of, of the, the cost is outweighed. Um, now, if some of you disagree, please go in the comments and, and let us know and we can discuss there. But I, I don't see a way in life where we as human beings operate and we don't think that we don't operate along the lines of this value equation where the value is ultimately made up of a benefit that is outweighed by cost. Because if the cost is higher, then we just don't do the action. Right. So and let me let me give you an example of what I've been doing this past week. So for me to go to school, for me to be doing this and working on projects that should get released soon, uh, well, after you're going to hear this, it's not mm -hmm. going to be out. What I was working on is the, vid the video essay on chapter three, but um, that costs me a lot. You're looking at someone who's, at least in his own terms, never made more than $13,000 in a year. Like, I'm lucky to make over $1,000 in a month. Um, and, you know, I've had a lot of help from family and friends and had very generous people in my life who've granted me access to opportunities to things, and I'm very grateful for that. But regardless... I ain't out here making a bunch of cheddar. Like I'm, I don't have, and that means as well in getting my master's degree and being a full-time student and doing and working almost 30 hours a week and doing this, I don't have a lot of extra time or money. And so I was working on this new project this weekend for the podcast or for the YouTube channel and the cost the benefit ratio was so high. Like it cost me a lot. I spent multiple, multiple hours working on something 
that is half completed and probably now that I've sat with it for a while, probably a third completed. And it's going to take me probably 10 to 15 more hours to finish it. And this, even the final product will come at no monetary value to me. I don't think so, unless it blows up and I get ad revenue from YouTube, which probably is very unlikely. Um, but I think that initial cost of the learning curve of this new thing I'm trying to produce is worth the is worth the benefit it can bring later. Not only in reach for the channel or new people to see this or to help people understand this thing I'm trying to explain, but even just in terms of me understanding what I mean when I say things, because this was also born out of conversations I had outside of this in my life, at my job, at school, and being like, okay, someone brought up this question. How do I explain it? Where do I start? If I'm asked that again, I want to have like a good answer or a good question to pose. It's like, this helps me figure that out. This is what much of this, our conversations are doing. Hopefully not just for us, but also for you. And so the cost of doing this is honestly very high. I have homework I could be working on. I have a whole master's thesis I need to be writing that I am not working on and I'm doing this and I spent most of my weekend doing something that is not related to school whatsoever when I'm in some sense sacrificing study time and grades for this. But the benefit in my eyes is very high. And so I'm willing to... I'm willing to eat that cost in the beginning. And I have a buddy who just bought a business and he's running it. And it's the same thing for him and the guy he's running it with. This happens at every startup you ever see, right? Um, he's, he always, people ask him, so how much are you making? He goes, if I were to calculate the hourly wage, I just want to cry. Like it would be under minimum wage in any state in the country. Yeah. But he's like, I also see how the dominoes may fall and how this can bring exponential growth later. So yeah. I will eat the cost now to for what, <clears throat> what will come, right? This is Peterson's idea of sacrifice, right? You sacrifice the present for the future. Yep. I'm sacrificing my present time and money and mental capacity and relational bandwidth at some level for the benefit of having the degree of studied the thing of made the video of learned the skill, not just so I can make money, but so that I can, so that I can provide what's underneath that, which is value to you. Yeah. So, so on that, on that, and um, th this is super, super important. This is my next, my next point was opportunity cost and value differentiation. We'll get to um, and, and time value. So in well, I'll just use a really simple example. In listening to our podcast right now, you have in some way deemed it more worth the other thing that you could be doing. Or so another podcast hearing, you could listen to. Yeah, another podcast you could listen to, um, which thank you, by the way. Um, that's a very, very good compliment. Um, and, I, and I hope that we prove you right, right? I, I sincerely hope that 
our podcast is more valuable to you than the other thing you could be doing with your time if you're listening to my words right now. But that's the decision that you've made, right? The cost of listening to this podcast is not listening to another podcast or not mowing your grass or not getting your schoolwork done or not working on the project you have, what have you. The benefit, hopefully, is the knowledge that we import to you. And this is why we cross-section much of those, right? This is why I love audiobooks, because I can get the benefit of having read the book while I lift weights, while I ride in my car, while I drive to work, while I, you know, clean the house, while I do the dishes, whatever. Yep. Same thing with podcasts most of the time, right? You're probably listening to this while driving your car, while at the gym, while doing laundry. You might just be sitting at your desk, interestingly enough, but granted, you're probably doing something else as well because you're, you're cross-sectioning the cost benefit because unless, unless it's really good, the cost of you just sitting there and consuming content like this is not worth the benefit most of the time. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, how, and that's sorry, I'm just going to go on, riff yeah. on this for just one second. That's when I know something's good. Yeah. Dude, I sat and I watched the interview that John Bernthal did with Shia LaBeouf at 12 o'clock at night. And it's like two and a half hours. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. I've heard some cool stuff about Shia recently. He became a Catholic. He had the interview with Bishop Barron. He seems to have really turned his life around. Good for him. I really like John Bernthal. I think he's an interesting guy. I like his characters. I've heard him in interviews. I think he he sounds like he's got his head on straight. And so I just skipped half an hour into the interview. I am sitting, I watched that thing full attention on my small laptop screen, sitting on my coffee table at 1.30 in the morning as Shia LaBeouf is describing when he was in rehab and the girl he ended up marrying calls him after nobody else calls him for a month and just says hi Shia and how he felt so and he's like crying and I'm crying hearing how Shia is talking about the love that his wife has for him and how that's changed his life and how going to like AA has made such a difference in him and but that my point is I'm an emotional wreck sometimes which is true but also like that podcast was so good the value it brought to me the 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 way it was so interesting the the perspective that it had was so worth me sacrificing sleep sacrificing my attention to do something else and just lock in that's when you know something's good a good movie good podcast a good book yeah good conversation you're not worried about time we're here and, and see, that really is the thing that, um, that, that I want to hit on is time. So opportunity costs associated with the value of time, right? It, it's a way of tracking the, the, the potential that the future is, right? Because the future is just potential. And what we hope to do is take the potential as the future comes to us in the present and turn it into something, right? And so economists think that money has time value because 
if you invest your money, you can reap dividends in the future. I think that's false. And this is kind of a very controversial statement. And I haven't done a dissertation on this. So, you know, take this with a grain of salt. Well, I'll, I have some examples because I've talked about but, this to other people. I'll defend you. Okay. I think money has value because it stores the value of time. Right. You, you pay someone, especially for a, like a convenience product, because they will save you time which means now you can do what you were just describing. You can double dip your time. You can listen to a podcast while doing the dishes or sweeping the house or mowing right. the grass or right. working out. You, and so the things that we do allow us to extend, the things that we, we value, money has value, not because it can be invested and reap dividends. It has value because it lets us take time and multiply it. Right. And it, it allows us to store the value of our time to be used later in different ways. It also, I'll, I'll give you two examples that are kind of similar. It also lets us offset our time to somebody else. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So a great example of this is any kind of major labor work that you do not have the resources or the knowledge to do, right? So when my car has engine trouble and the oil light stays on, I go to the import specialist place because they're the only place in town that works on Volkswagens. And I pay the mechanic $65 for his eyes, just for the diagnostic, not even for them to touch it. But I'm paying, I'm literally paying for his value. I'm paying for his eyes because I don't have the same eyes he has. I don't and have the training he has. So I will offset, time. sorry, I will offset my, uh, I'm going to get to, I think what you're yeah. about to say in just a second. I will offset my, hey, I worked X amount of hours so that I can pay you to look at this thing, right? Um, and tell me what, what we need to do. Same thing, if you ever have major household appliances break down or issues, right? You pay the guy who works for the heating and cooling company, come look at your heater or your AC unit because- Maybe, and I've had other, I'll have, give you a different example here in just a second, but like most of the time those, if the exchange is good and fair, the thought is, look, man, I could look up how to fix my engine in my Volkswagen, but that'd take me maybe 30 hours. Like between looking it up, studying it, knowing what I need to get, buying the thing, fixing it, probably fixing it wrong the first three times and then finally getting it right. Maybe 15, anyway, but it's worth it for me to drive to the place, say, hello, sir, take my 65 or my 100 or $200 or whatever it is. Because that's, you know, a day, day and a half of work for me. That is 15 hours, right? That's 15 yeah. hours. Yeah. And say, can you look at this? Yeah. So, and so I am paying him for his expertise and his time because I don't want to go through that myself. I could do it myself, but it would, the, the cost to benefit would be way less than me just paying him. Yes. But I'm offsetting because he can look at it and give me an answer in 10 minutes. Yeah. Whereas my answer would take three hours. Mm -hmm. I have no idea. And yeah. so then they can put me in the assembly line system and fix my thing and I'm good to go. Now 
I did have a professor who talked the other day about stuff he did over the weekend. This is my last example. They had to redo something with their heater. And the guy came and he gave him the diagnostic and he told him what he would need to fix it. So he gave him the part. So he already paid him for his eyes. Yeah. And then they quoted him a certain amount for the part and the labor. And then he was like, oh, but then I found the part for way less money than what they quoted me. And I fixed it myself in an afternoon. Great. He calculated the cost benefit and said, it benefits me more to just buy it and use my own time on the Saturday or Sunday afternoon and fix the thing. Cause it's, you know, and a lot of times we sometimes make that decision, right? I don't always yeah. need to go to the mechanic. I don't always need to call the guy. I don't always need the thing, but there's many times where I do. And I will, I will make that differentiation, yeah. but these are ways in which it's not just, this is when the time becomes the money because I'm yeah. offsetting the value. So I, I really need to interject here because you Go just ahead. said something that's super important. And that was going to bring me to my next thing. And I'll try to be quick because I know we've, um, we've got to go, but the um, value differentiation, this is how we get value differentiation. And this is where, and I'll, I was trying not to get political. I'm going to try still not to get political, at least contemporarily. But this is where I think Karl Marx was wrong. He talks about how prices are set arbitrarily by the manufacturer, distributor, the, the seller of the good. And it's not true. It's not true at all. I think you've mentioned this before, but go ahead. Yeah, prices are not set arbitrarily because all of the inputs of time that is stored in the value of money that go into making and right. then distributing and market, all of that gets condensed into the price. All costs are passed through to the consumer. And so- right. Value this differentiation is, why something... is a thing because time exists. That that is why we have different values on things. And so we're, we're getting really radical <laughs> here. We're, we're we're about to have to go. And so I want to make this point: is that um, value differentiation is real. And next time we'll we'll have a discussion about tre treasures and treasuring more, but. The question that I want to leave you with is, are the things we are treasuring, are the things we are diverting our time and attention to? And money. And, and money, which is a, a capturing a distillation of time. Are those the things of the kingdom of heaven? Mm. And is there a way in which we can properly value, order our valuation of things in step with God and not simultaneously think that all value is arbitrary and everything is equal because it's not. Right. Some things do have more benefits than others. Living is better than dying and things help with life <laughs> more or less, right? And, and that's important. That is very important. Are we valuing the things of heaven or not? And is the cost associated with that do we consider that worth it? Great question. All right. We'll be back next time. To talk about treasures and treasury. Mm -hmm.